Hello, and welcome to The Dirt. On this show, we discuss all things related to the environment and environmental justice, often with a focus on North Carolina. The show is packed today. As usual, we're going to have a panel in the studio to discuss what's happening with the legislature here in Raleigh and figure out why they're playing politics with contaminated drinking water. Coming back for a special session next week, so we'll get into that. We'll be digging into a drastically underreported topic, which is prison ecology. There are some fascinating intersections between the equal justice fight against the problems associated with mass incarceration and the environmental justice fight to protect vulnerable populations from disproportionate exposure to toxic waste, contaminated water, and polluted air. But we're going to start off today with a group of regular citizens doing their best to fight the economic and political behemoth known as Duke Energy. For those who don't know... Duke Energy Progress and eventually Duke Energy Carolinas are going to be seeking approval from the North Carolina Utilities Commission for a $477.5 million increase in the amount they're collecting from ratepayers each year. For residential customers, this is going to mean that their energy bills will skyrocket by 16.7% if the Utilities Commission approves the ask. And for context, Duke Energy is an investor-owned utility, the biggest in the nation, which means it's beholden to shareholders rather than the captive consumers that it's serving. Uh, They've spent 23 years on the Fortune 500 list. In 2016, the company reported profits of over $2 billion, compensated CEO to the tune of $13.8 million. And according to the Southern Environmental Law Center, Duke Energy is on record as having committed over 2,000 violations of North Carolina law. Some of those may have contributed to the devastating Dan River coal ash spill in 2014. Uh, The company maintains over a dozen coal ash storage ponds, all of which are leaking and contaminating nearby water sources. But a large portion of Duke's rate increase request is for coal ash management. And a wide range of groups from AARP to the Sierra Club and Fight for 15 are opposing the rate increase. On September 25th, they came together for a demonstration outside the Utilities Commission building in Raleigh and participated in a public hearing in front of the commissioners later that evening. We spoke with a few of them. Have a listen. No to Duke! Down with 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 Duke! Okay, I'm here with Kate Fulbright. She is affiliate organizer with North Carolina Conservation Network. Kate, hi. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. We're outside the North Carolina Utilities Commission. There are a lot of people, a lot of groups out here demonstrating. They're going to be going inside shortly to uh, voice their concerns about a Duke rate hike request in front of the Utilities Commissioners. I want to know from you, why does Duke want to raise rates on ratepayers, they already have a ton of money. Why do they need more? Uh, Duke Energy is asking to raise rates for several reasons, um, one of which is uh, the cost of coal ash cleanup. Um, so they're cleaning up several of their sites from across the state. Uh, you'll remember in 2014, there was the spill, which kind of brought all of these other coal ash pits into light. In the Dan River, right? That's right. Um, so, so they're trying to do cost recovery for their cleanup efforts, even though they're not cleaning up all of the sites. Okay. So the public has a chance to weigh in at hearings in Raleigh and in Asheville this week. What is next? How many more hearings and opportunities will there, will there be for, for folks to speak out? So that's right. There's Buncombe County, uh, which is later this week, so Asheville. Uh, then we have Greene County and New Hanover County. Um, and then... Duke Energy Carolinas will 
um, come out with the dates for their uh, rate hike request, and those will kind of encompass some of the rest of the state. And those will be towards the end of this year. So an average customer is going to see their utility bill shoot up by, I think, nearly $18 a month if the Utilities Commission approves this request. Uh, which is a substantial impact. I'm sure families are already beginning to try and budget mm-hmm. around that. What What is the timeline here? When do they need to start thinking about when this is going to hit? When's the decision going to be made? So we can expect a decision by the end of the year, and I would imagine that folks will probably expect this on their bills by early next year, I think. So one last thing, as the affiliate organizer at Conservation Network, you you know everyone. I'm sure you recognize most of the faces that are outside the Utilities Commission today. Can you just give us a sense of what groups and individuals are are here today or who's represented and who's planning on speaking out in front of the commission? Sure. There are a ton of groups here, so I apologize if I missed someone. Um, We've got Act Against Colash. There's Clean Clean Water for North Carolina, Appalachian Voices, Sierra Club, Toxic Free NC, Uh, Interfaith Power and Light, uh, Fight for 15, North Carolina Conservation Network. Um, We've got a lot of groups out here today. And how long do you think it's going to go? I hope to be out of here by midnight. Wow. All right. Thanks, Kate. Thank you. I am here with Deborah Graham. She lives within a thousand feet of a leaking Duke Energy coal ash plant. Uh, she has been on bottled water now for 800 plus days, I think, at this point. And you're here to speak out against Duke Energy's rate hike request. I want to know, I guess, before we get into the rate request stuff, <laughs> drinking water wells in your community have been contaminated with hexavalent chromium now for a while. It's a carcinogenic compound uh, that's a f- commonly found in coal ash. For anyone who has not heard your story yet, quickly, what is that like living on bottled water, living next to one of these coal ash sites? Well, my family and I, we've been living on bottled water now 889 days with more, many, many more days forthcoming. Um, It has changed everything that we do. We wait every two weeks for the water truck to pull up. My family hauls water from outside to inside. We move it from the living room to the kitchen as we use the water. We um, have a special place now that we've got garbage bags sitting to put the empty bottles that then we have to find somewhere else to sit. And about every two weeks, we take those bottles to the recycling center. Everything we do revolves around our water now. I don't trust other people's water. If I go to someone else's home or even a restaurant, I ask them if they had their water tested. Um, we continue to, um, to live on bottled water. So... After all that you and your community has been through, now we've got Duke Energy Progress and eventually Duke Energy Carolinas who are going to be asking for rate increases from everyone across the state. Um, The Duke Energy Progress, they're looking for upwards of 17% on residential rate payers. What are you going to tell or what do you want to tell commissioners who have the power to approve or deny these rate increase requests? Well, you know, I've done some research, and I understand that Duke Energy hadn't had a rate increase since 2013, and quite frankly, since 2014, they've been busy with co-ash, so they hadn't had a lot of chance to, um, to ask for one. However, I understand that their company needs to... Um, 
have have a rate increase. I understand Kellogg's is still making cereal, but some of their boxes may be a little bit smaller. Uh, French's ketchup is is in a smaller bottle. I understand that. You know, the need for electricity is more and more. What I don't understand and what I can't famine is the fact that over half of that money is going to clean up coal ash. When clearly, for decades, these coal ash pits across our state, all 14 of them have been left to crumble, to deteriorate all by themselves. You know, that is a known fact, um, and, and nobody really understood that. I didn't even know that until after the Dan River spill. In the investigations that took place after the Dan River spill, the fines, the citations, and now the many, many lawsuits that have come since then. Um, you know, right is right and wrong is wrong. Duke Energy is a good company. They do a lot for our communities. They do a lot for schools. But they are going to be remembered for the way they have handled this coal ash. This is their coal ash. It is their trash. It is not my trash. I don't ask Duke Energy to pay for my trash bill. They shouldn't ask me to pay for theirs. Their own insurance company won't pay them for this um, coal ash cleanup, and neither should we. So you also have a lawsuit against Duke Energy. Do you want to talk about that? I, I really can't. Um, don't want to talk about that right now because we are here for the rate hike hearing. All right. So let, let's just leave that one to another time. Sounds good. Thank you, Deborah. Thank you. Shame on Duke! 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 All right, I'm with Dave Rogers. He's from Sierra Club's Beyond Coal Campaign. How are you doing, Dave? I'm doing well. Thank you very much. So beyond the public input that a lot of the folks here are going to be providing, there is actually kind of a legal route to influence what the Utilities Commission eventually decides. That's the so-called intervener route. Can you explain a little bit what that is? Yeah, so the um, the Utilities Commission is what's called a quasi-judicial process. So they aren't necessarily judges the way... Um, uh, folks generally think, but they fulfill a, a kind of similar role. So um, when an organization uh, formally intervenes, like the Sierra Club do has done on this, it gives them the opportunities to submit expert testimony, uh, cross-examine uh, some of the experts that Duke uh, at, has bring into the table to justify uh, the rate hikes, um, and provide that uh, testimony just directly to the commissioner. So it's a, a it's a, both a different and a little bit more kind of thorough way to engage in the process. When will intervener proceedings begin? Yeah, so um, testimony is due November 6th, uh, so that's direct testimony. Um, then after that, the uh, sides will have the opportunity to submit rebuttal testimony. And, uh, and then the evidentiary hearing, which is a hearing similar to the one uh, that's happening in Raleigh, um, but is more of a kind of courtroom type of testimony. So that gives you an opportunity to directly uh, question some of their witnesses. Uh, and that is on November 20th. Okay. Yeah. One more thing I wanted to ask you. There is what's called a fixed charge aspect to this uh, rate request. Can you explain a little bit about what that is? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of people are aware of the coal ash cost right. recovery and the fact that that's a big part of it. But uh, something that um, will affect everybody is uh, Duke's effort to increase fixed charges. So that is the portion of the bill that you get before you even turn on a light. Um, so Duke currently uh, has a fixed charge of about a little over $11, and they want to bump it up to $19.50. Wow. Um, that's problematic for a number of reasons. You know, the first and foremost is that disproportionately impacts um, customers who can least afford it. So people who can't afford higher energy bills now can't do as much to actually save. And then the second 
um, pretty significant problem is it's um, it just has a huge impact and really disproportionately discourages people to uh, from energy efficiency and conservation because if you use less energy by buying more energy efficient appliances or turn your thermostat up or down depending on the time of year you actually um, lose the ability to save as much as you would otherwise if the fixed charges were uh, lower or just stay where they are right now and then this particular fixed charge if Duke was able to achieve it would be one of the highest in the country so um, we think um, Duke should be actually doing more things to encourage energy efficiency and conservation and not um, working towards policies that actually discourage those type of things. Right that's frustrating on a number of levels. Thanks yeah. Dave. Yeah thank you. All right, we are with Wanda Coker. She is with Fight 415 outside the Utilities Commission here. Wanda, what is Fight 415 hoping to accomplish today? Fight for 15, in conjunction with the other groups, are trying to make sure that this rate hike does not go through. Um, reason for Fight 15, we are fighting to get minimum wage raised up because people working making lower incomes, you already cannot afford a lot of the bills that you have, uh, especially myself. Um, so a hike would, of any amount would just, like, cripple and wreck my budget that I'm already, like, down to the penny on. And it's so important to me that I, I left dialysis <laughs> and came straight here so that I could speak and try to help in whichever way I can so that we can get this to go through. Yeah, the last 16.7% is a huge, huge That increase. is huge. Uh, how are you going to be speaking inside? Um, I'm not sure. I know that they're going to get the cars and do something, so I'm not sure if I'm speaking inside. Okay. Is there anything else you'd like to tell the commissioners uh, if you were? They need to know that we are all, at this point, pretty much on tight budgets. We cannot afford a 16.7 increase. What in the world? If anything, maybe 3%. We, we might can finagle that so that, you know, we can still live and everything. But it's like, I'm at a point now where month to month, I have to decide whether or not I'm going to get a prescription or I'm going to buy some food or not pay one bill so that I can be able to live. So, I mean, increases like that, just, they'll cripple some people. They will really cripple some people. All right. Thank you, Wanda. Appreciate it. Thank you. When North Carolinians are under attack, what do we do? I'm here with Bobby Jones from the Downeast Coal Ash Coalition out in Goldsboro, North Carolina. How are you doing today, Bobby? Doing great. So what are you hoping to achieve here today? Well, one of the major things I hope to accomplish is, is an opportunity to uh, collaborate with other people and develop, become a little more empowered in the fact that we can come together and 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 articulate our concern with this energy giant. Uh, what I hope to get out of this is an opportunity for the people who uh, have concerns or impact to articulate their discontent as well as develop uh, some of the uh, 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 benefit from the collective synergy that comes along with, with being together like this. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty broad and diverse kind of 
collection of groups who are opposing this. You're going to be at the Greene County hearing, correct? Right. What are your expectations for that? Uh, very similar uh, to, to here. Uh, first, to uh, support the community as a whole to come together and articulate their, their discontent, as well as uh, being part of like Down East and other organizations to educate, to provide additional education to the public of why uh, this, this uh, rate hike is, is ridiculous. Uh, you know, uh, these are business folks, they're shoot business folks, and um, why should they be rewarded for, for doing poor business? So that's, that's what we're, we're going to try to educate the community, uh, empower them, get them out, you know, and, and let their voices be heard. All right, you think you're going to win? I think we're going to win to stop the rate hike? Yeah. I don't, you know, look, losing, we didn't come here to lose, if you hear what I'm saying. We didn't come here to lose. We might have a setback, but we don't. We have no intention of losing. Great. Okay. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you to Conservation Network's Mike Lento for helping package that segment. Uh, we are headed to a break, so stay tuned. Welcome back to the dirt. A reminder that you can listen to us live in Raleigh on WSHA 88.9 FM in Rocky Mount. Tune to 102.1 and at Fayetteville on 102.3 FM. As always, you can stream the show online at WSHAFM.org. And I'm very happy to announce that The Dirt is now available as a podcast on iTunes as well. So subscribe to the new show there. Leave us a review and a rating. We appreciate it. You can also find us on Twitter at The Dirt FM. I am super excited about our second segment today. On the phone, we have Zoe Loftus-Farron. She's an investigative reporter and managing editor of Earth Island Journal. Earth Island Journal has joined forces with Truthout to delve into the intersection between mass incarceration and environmental justice. It's a really interesting space. Zoe, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. My pleasure. So this project occupies just kind of a very interesting nexus. And I think from a journalistic standpoint, you are really like you're really treading on new ground. I, I, I've never seen anything quite like it. Can you tell me what prompted this project and this collaboration and, and why you're looking at this issue? Sure. Um, so a few years ago, we kind of first became aware of this intersect these intersecting issues of um, environmental justice and mass incarceration when we ran a report on lecture county um, and a prison proposal there um, and the proposal is basically to build a maximum security facility that would house some um, 1200 prisoners um, and it was to be built on a mountaintop um, removal site so we ran a piece about you know the the implications of that for prison prisoner health in terms of contamination of local waterways, um, potential drinking water sources for prisoners, as well as potential impacts on species in the region and habitat. Um, there's a number of endangered, or at least, I guess, two endangered species in the region. Um, and, you know, we were really interested in the subject and kind of the, the project opened our eyes. Um, that was written by a... Um, 
an advocate with the Human Rights Defense Center, and from there we kind of, we just became, you know, more and more aware of how widespread this issue was, and um, that it deserved a closer look. Yeah, and, it, um, it's fascinating, and I think I mean just for listeners, I, and I think many buddy, many listeners know um, the country has a prison problem. The U.S. locks up more people per capita than any other nation in the world. Uh, I think last estimates showed 2.3 million people sitting behind bars, which is staggering. And and it's basically invisible to the everyday lives of, I think, most people, particularly to a lot of white Americans and especially wealthier white Americans who uh, are incarcerated at disproportionately low rates and who often don't have prisons located in their backyards. I'm guessing that very few listeners, very few folks uh, have considered the environmental impacts of those prisons uh, in the ways that you're talking about uh, on the communities around them as well as uh, on you know contaminated water in the in the prison populations themselves it's really interesting it sounds like the prison location and the prison siting is kind of one of the core pieces of this uh so i wanted to ask you uh where typically the prisons that you're looking at where are they located how are the locations chosen yeah, I mean, that's definitely a part of it. Um, prisons are often built on marginal lands that maybe have been used for something else in the past, like um, resource extraction, as was the case in Letcher County, or that are contaminated from some other use. Um, and these lands may not be seen as suitable for a lot of other uses other than, you know, holding prisoners there. Um, and we saw, you know, a wide variety of problems uh, or problems around siting. Um, sometimes it's that these facilities are built very close to a super fun site or a different hazardous waste site. Um, sometimes it's that they're built in, you know, areas with extreme heat and they don't have air conditioning systems, so that puts the prisoners at risk. Sometimes they're in California in the Central Valley. Um, prisoners are exposed to valley fever, which is a fungus that lives in the soil there. Um, so there's really a wide variety of problems related to where these prisons are actually built that put prisoners' uh, health at risk. Yeah, I think you wrote that there are at least 589 prisons within three miles of a Superfund site, which is uh, really fascinating and a little shocking. Right. Um, so what are, I guess there's also two components to this. There's, there's the effects, the environmental impacts that a prison can have on the surrounding community and the surrounding ecosystem. Uh, and then there are the ways in which the the toxic sites that they're often located on have implications for the prisoners inside. You mentioned some environmental species endangerment and other things as far as the, the former goes. What what are some of those other impacts that, that prisons have on, on their communities and on the surrounding ecosystems? Yeah, um, one, of, one of the big things we saw was um, water pollution from the prisons themselves. Um, for example, in California, the California men's colony um, on the central coast has kind of had this ongoing problem with um, sewage and wastewater from the prison um, spilling into the surrounding environment and, and waterways and contaminating that water actually to the point where, you know, areas have had to be closed to recreation and fishing, um, those kinds of activities. We also spoke with advocates who pointed to um, 
some air pollution impacts associated with prisons, particularly, you know, if they have their own um, power generating generation on site that can be an added source for nearby communities who are um, often themselves also, you know, lower income, um, as well as for, of course, the, the prisoners living right there. Um, those are the, those are the two big ones that we've looked at so far. Yeah, it's interesting. I know in North Carolina, a lot of our listeners uh, are familiar with factory hog farming out east, and mm-hmm. they they generate a huge amount of waste, and it goes into waterways. And I mean, it, it is not great to compare, you know, a hog farm to a prison. Uh, it's full of human beings, but the the waste generation and where does it go kind of aspect of that uh, sounds to me like it's very similar uh, and, and maybe something that North Carolinians can wrap their minds around. Um, I, I want to also yeah. talk about the, um, the human rights uh, aspect of this, the constitutional rights aspect of this, because uh, it sounds like from, from what I've been reading in your pieces that there are... Uh, you know, we're, we're forcing prisoners to drink water contaminated with all kinds of things, arsenic, uh, potentially coal ash. Sometimes they just don't bother looking at what might be in the water. It's just a funny color. Uh, and and you talk to some people who were getting sick and suggested that, you know, they thought maybe it could be the water. You know, it's it's pretty sickening when you think, well, this person is serving a sentence for five years or 10 years, or maybe it's a, you know, um, relatively minor drug charge or whatever it might be. It doesn't matter what the sentence is, but you are giving them a death sentence by exposing them to, you know, carcinogenic compounds in their water. Uh, and that is, that's an Eighth Amendment problem. That's a human rights problem. What were uh, what were some of the ailments that people you talked to and your team talked to uh, suffering from? Yeah, um, you know, we talked to several people, um, particularly a lot of our reporting was in Pennsylvania and Texas and California. Um, in, you know, Pennsylvania, some of the prisoners that we spoke to described really filthy contaminated water that they'd um, had to drink also, you know, dust from um, nearby like coal shipping activities, and um, you know it's hard to always link health problems directly to these exposures. But um, these same prisoners had been sick, had cancer, um, those kinds of health problems. Um, in Texas, the the prisoners had suffered from heat stroke, um, a lot of like heat related illnesses, and um, in California, people that I spoke with had become really ill with valley fever, which can, um, you know, as I mentioned, it's a fungal infection um, and it can be deadly. Um, the people that I spoke with had, you know, just described never having felt this sick, sick in their lives, um, thinking that they were going to die and, you know, explained that they um, in some cases live with lifelong symptoms. So even if they do um, don't have a, a life sentence and are released from prison, they continue to suffer the impacts of their incarceration for potentially you know their whole life. So the inst- at, at each of these institutions are is anyone held accountable um, for you know all of this? What 
what happens? Um, you know, that is one thing that, that we looked into. We collected a lot of data from the EPA and from um, some of the state agencies that are in charge of regulating environmental um, issues. And we did see, you know, some enforcement history by the EPA in terms of, like, fines or warnings. Um, but overall, that's something, you know, we want to look a lot more deeply into because um, it seems that there's you know, not as much enforcement as you would expect given uh, the pretty terrible conditions within some of these prisons. Yeah, and I'm, I'm guessing that there hasn't been any kind of kind of epidemiological study done on a mass, you know, kind of scale to look at all of these different ailments and from a kind of statistical perspective, it sounds like part of the problem here is that no one is looking at this at all. There's there's a, mm-hmm. a lot of data missing. Um, is that the case? Did you have a hard time getting information? What little information there was? What what was it like trying to gather all of that? It was, it was certainly, you know, a challenge um, getting our data requests from the EPA and um, the state agencies. We did, you know, there's a few organizations that are really focusing on this work. Um, the Abolitionist Law Center in Pennsylvania is trying to conduct a health study um, related to conditions in um, the SCI Fayette prison Um in LaBelle, Pennsylvania, um, they're, you know, they've run into their own challenges, but they're continuing with that effort. Um, the Human Rights Defense Center has also been, you know, really advocating on this issue and um, trying to collect data on its own. But at this point, there are definitely a, a lot of gaps just due to the challenging nature of um, getting this type of information. Right. Uh, one bright spot, it sounds like, uh, relates to EPA adding prison locations to its environmental justice mapping tool. Can you tell us about that? Right. Yeah, so just um, this summer, the EPA announced that it would add a prison layer to this um, EJ screen tool, it's called. That's you know a tool that they've had for a while that helps the public and advocates um, assess possible exposures to different pollutants or toxic sites, that kind of stuff. Um, and they, in releasing the tool, they really cited the, the growing push from um, members of this, you know, prison ecology movement, human rights activists um, for such a tool. And um, it's a, I spoke with um, the Human Rights Defense Center earlier, or I guess last week, and they really hailed it as a huge victory for the movement that will really um, change the way that they're able to assess risks and build campaigns and advocate on behalf of prison populations. That's fantastic. And there are more than 6,000 prisons, jails, detention centers, I think, around the country. So that's that's a really, really huge tool. Uh, another, well, actually, before we move on from that, is there any worry or concern about the current administration rolling that back? I mean, it, it has a pretty terrible record on environmental justice uh, so far in just mm-hmm. a few minutes that, that these folks have been in power. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely concern um, among those working on this issue about the administration in general and what that means for um, their work. I don't know that there's concern specifically about the you know prison layer on the EJ screen, but um, it's definitely not going to be 
easy to work on these issues um, during the next few years. Well, we're glad you're doing it. You mentioned earlier on in the interview a mountaintop removal site. Uh, I think it was the same one. DOJ, Department of Justice, was going to put a prison on a mountaintop coal removal site in Kentucky. What's the status of that? Yeah, so there's also, um, you know, an update there in May. The Department of Justice withdrew its funding request for um, building that prison, which was also a pretty big move. They've been pushing for it and, um, you know, going through the necessary steps to get it built for the last several years. Um, And they withdrew their, I think it's $440 million, something like that, dollar proposal. Um, There's still, you know, people working in this area are celebrating that as well, but it's not totally clear what will happen with the prison yet. Um, Local politicians are still pushing for it to be built, and Congress has, you know, already kind of built in funding for it into the proposed budget. So it's yet to be seen exactly what what will happen with the prison, but... um, it's a kind of a strong place to be arguing from that the Department of Justice says they no longer need the facility. Um, yeah, that's fantastic. And I, I expect that this mapping tool that you mentioned will be helpful in proactively fighting these kinds of prison projects in the future, uh, hopefully at least. Yes, it, I think, um, you know, the, the Human Rights Defense Center has said it, it will be definitely useful in that. Um, it also just kind of um, makes the point that the Department of Justice should be considering um, where prisons are located and how locations um, impact prisoner health when they're assessing new you know, prison proposals and um, citing decisions. So I think that I read you're up to maybe seven parts in this investigative series so far. Where, how, how long are you going to go? Where does it go next? Um, what should we be looking for? Yeah, we're, we don't have a, you know, a set um, number for the series, but we're definitely um, want to continue digging into this. The more, the more we look into the issue, the more, you know, it kind of comes to light. Um, we want to circle back to some of the data we collected and see what else we can pull from it, look at some of the you know, facilities that had the most violations or the states with um, the most violations overall um, and to continue, you know, celebrating any um, victories for the movement, such as the EJ screen tool and the Letcher County um, funding with withdrawal. Um, so I think it's it's exciting. It's, a, it's evolving as it goes and um, it's uh, we plan to continue for for a while at least. It's definitely an issue that is, you know, I think it's under the radar for a lot of folks right now, but it is absolutely not going to be in the future. This is fantastic work. Where can people find all of your pieces? Where can they find more about you, more about the project, more about the issue in general? They can find um, the entire series is both on the Earth Island Journal website and on the Truth Out website, um, who we've collaborated uh, on this project with. And um, we're there. All the series stories in the series are easily identifiable, so um, that's where you can find updates as we continue. Okay. 
Well, thank you very much for talking to us, Zoe. I have learned a lot. I hope that listeners have learned a lot, and I'm really looking forward to, to reading more about what you all do here. Thank you so much for having me. Yep. Have a good one. Okay, we are going to head to a break. Coming up next, we've got a panel of policy experts to discuss a special session in the North Carolina legislature, which will begin next week on October 4th. There are several environmental bills that have been vetoed that may be overridden. Uh, There's news about the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. There's news about Gen X, the contaminant in the Cape Fear River. And we're going to find out if we're going to get money for Hurricane Matthew recovery. That was a hurricane from last season, uh, and we're still in the middle of hurricane season this year. So we're going to talk about what we can do to prevent more damage next time a big storm hits and whether the legislature is doing anything um, to do that. Welcome back to The Dirt. We are headed into the final segment of the show today. And as usual, it's time to talk about some of the latest environmental news out of the state legislature. I want to welcome our panel into the studio to talk about what we should be keeping an eye on. So joining us today, we have Katie Todd, Director of Digital Strategies with the North Carolina League of Conservation Voters. Hi, Katie. Hi, Brian. We have Grady McCallie, Policy Director at North Carolina Conservation Network. Hello. Good to be with you. And we have Matthew Starr, your Upper News Riverkeeper. Happy to be back. Thanks for being here. So, another special session. If they happen so frequently, are they that special? It's a special, (laughs) special, special session. Yeah. Uh, Next week, October 4th, they're going to convene. I don't know when they'll actually get down to business. We've got uh, three environmental bills that have been vetoed by the governor that the legislature could address or could not address. Uh, what do we think they're going to do? I, I want to I want to first start off with the recurring theme on this show, garbage juice. Uh, we've got the H-576. It's the aerosolization bill. It was vetoed a while back, and we keep kind of wondering if it's going to they're going to have a vote on the, the veto override or not. Matthew, you want to tell us what's up? Yeah, so we've talked about this numerous times as listeners hopefully remember um just a couple weeks ago the industry the waste industry um so those big companies that are in charge of handling waste and handling landfills said that they would not use this technology so just just to remind listeners the technology in question is blowing garbage juice garbage juice in landfills basically through a giant fan creating yep. tiny droplets and then the bad stuff is supposed to sink and the good stuff is supposed to just float away like fairy dust and be great right yeah okay. so and there's there's no science that supports this and the industry is skeptical yeah so so you have no science to support this technology you have the industry saying they're not going to use it because it's not viable um so hopefully the veto vote to override it is it's never taken up and this bill just dies I'm going to count on that being the case, and we're going to talk about it every single show (laughs) until we know with 100% certainty it is dead. Uh, Moving on from that, we had H56, which was passed and vetoed, I think, all in the the time between this show and the last one. What was H56, and what, what do we think is going to happen? 
Yeah, so House Bill 56, the amend environmental laws, was kind of what we call like an omnibus of anti-environmental provisions. Probably the most um, well-known one at this point was that it allocated funds to the utility and the local um, commission to study and address the Gen X contaminant discovered in the Cape Fear River. Um, a story that we've had Adam Wagner on the show, who was actually the one who brought it to light through the Wilmington Star News. And um, it's certainly become a very major concern for communities who rely on drinking water sources from the Kafir River. Um, House Bill 56 also contained a few other provisions. Um, one was repealing the Outer Banks ban on plastic bags that had been in place since 2009. This was a ban that had overwhelmingly overwhelming support from um, businesses in the Outer Banks, uh, commissioners, and local residents because plastic on beaches don't mix. It doesn't mix for sea turtles and other oceanic wildlife. Um, and certainly we know the Outer Banks is incredibly beautiful. We have a lot of tourists who like to visit it and seeing waste, uh, tumbleweeds of plastic bags rolling down those pristine beaches doesn't bring the tourists. Uh, one other provision that's not quite as uh, sexy, but certainly has environmental and public health implications was around um, allowing or not allowing local municipalities to essentially kind of dictate how trash is collected. Um, and for a lot of counties, they actually invest a lot of money in their landfills. And part of that is it's a revenue source for county services. Um, also things around um, methane recovery. So methane recovery is a process where the methane that comes off garbage can be um, captured and then actually used to generate electricity. And in some places it can generate up to 500 homes. If House Bill 56 would have allowed waste companies to say, you know what, we actually don't want to work with you. We're going to go to the other county to take the trash because um, they're offering a cheaper rate. So that would leave many of our North Carolina um, counties without critical funding for public services like our libraries and school systems. And that's definitely a component that a lot of people haven't been talking about. I want to go back real quickly to the the Gen X part of this. Uh, you mentioned that it it would have secured some money to go towards Gen X, allegedly. Um, Grady, can you talk a little bit about where that money was going and where it wasn't going? Right. So when you hear that there was money in the bill um, to address Gen X, it may sound strange that Governor Cooper chose to veto the bill. But some of the, the background on that that's important to know, Governor Cooper had asked for $2.6 million dollars for the state, for the Department of Environmental Quality and the Department of Health and Human Services to hire the expertise they need to address emerging contaminants problems with persistent toxics um, like Gen X. And where that comes from, the reason he made that request is that over the last six or seven years, we've seen significant cuts in the capacity in the funding that the state legislature has sent to our Department of Environmental Quality and our Department of Health and Human Services. And they desperately need people who can process permits. We have a backlog of water permits, like the Chemours permit. Chemours is the place the Gen X was coming from. And like um, the staff, we need epidemiologists, toxicologists in our Department of Public Health in the state health agency. Uh, and we haven't had the funding for that. In fact, if you look at our state environmental agency's funding compared to other um, states' funding, we're actually about six from the bottom in terms of funding. Wow. Um, so legislature has gotten way behind on what it needs to be sending to our agencies to have the capacity to practice statewide from these contaminants. 
what was in House Bill 56 is unfortunately playing politics. What the legislature did was throw 435000 so much less than the governor asked, and they didn't throw it to these agencies. They were sending it to a local utility to do some tests um, and to look for a way to keep Gen X out of, out of the drinking water. The problem with that is we already know that any technology is way more expensive than they can afford. And when you, when you try and deal with pollution by dealing with it on the drinking water treatment side rather than the place where the pollution is coming from, you're letting the people who pollute get away with that, and you're transferring the costs to the people who are drinking the water and paying their utility bills downstream. So the governor's solution was to get money in the agencies that are set up to deal with this problem statewide. The legislation, House Bill 56, didn't do that. It sent the money someplace else, mostly as a cover so the legislature could say they were doing something on this. That's why the governor vetoed it. And what we'll see when they come back next week is... Does the legislature have second thoughts? Or do they decide to get serious about actually funding our regulatory agencies to protect us? And the, the political component of that was readily apparent when the Senate president, Phil Berger, came out and said, oh, look, Governor Cooper voted against, you know, funding for Gen X. And then the North Carolina Republican Party came out and said, oh, look, you know, he voted against Gen X. It was clearly baiting him into a veto so that they could push a political message about that subject. So let's move on to some other things. There's still Senate Bill 16 that's lingering that was vetoed. Is that correct? Right. Senate Bill 16 is another one that that the governor vetoed. It has a bunch of different provisions in it. The one of particular note from an environmental perspective, Section 19 of that bill. And what what that section does is it resurrects a bunch of expired septic system permits. So this is for people who have a septic system. They're not on, on sewer, county municipal sewer. And the way that program works now, they're... You can, you can go out and get a septic permit, and if you put it on the deed, it lasts forever. You can get a kind that lasts forever. But you can also get one that only lasts five years, and it's not on the deed. So then if somehow you don't build that system in five years, it's expired. You can't, you can't build it later. You'd have to go get a new permit. It's not marked on the deed. The effect of this provision, if, it were, if the governor's veto were to be overridden and were to pass, it would mean that someone could go out, pick up a permit that they got in 2002 or someone who owned the property got in 2002, it would be alive again, even though it's been expired, and they could build their system. Now, in the meantime, someone may well put in a well, drinking water well, next door. And so what will happen if this becomes law is someone goes out, relies on an old permit, the county health inspector comes out before they hook up the the system at the end of construction and says, whoa, 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 you've got a drinking water well within the setback. You can't put your septic in there. You can't turn it on because you'll get fecal bacteria in their drinking water well. And then the person who's built the system is all out of the money that they spent. So wisely, this is one that health departments across the state have have really taken up arms over and said, no, that's a terrible idea from a policy perspective, and they've let legislators know. So I'm hopeful that we will not see this veto overridden. Okay. Do we think that 56 is going to come up? It seems likely. Okay. Uh, let's get an update very quickly on the Atlantic Coast Pipeline because there have been some developments on that since the last time that we had a show. What's happening, Katie? Yeah, so uh, on September 14th, the North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality sent a memo out um, to the kind of overarching company that's pushing forward this pipeline. Just a quick reminder about this pipeline. This is a 600-mile, 42-inch diameter uh, project that will bring fracked natural gas um, through West Virginia into North Carolina. About 160 miles of that 600-mile pipeline will be traversing through eastern North 
North Carolina and over a lot of drinking water sources. So in this memo and specifically um, from DEQ said, hey, dear, you know, Duke Energy, Dominion, you know, all these folks who put together this proposal, you're missing a lot of uh, pieces. Um, There's a lot of concern about the waters, uh, streams that will be impacted, um, the different processes that the companies are proposing and how they're going to cross these different bodies of water. Atlantic Coast Pipeline poses a threat to, you know, we were just talking about the Cape Fear, the Tar River, the Noose, and a lot of the kind of justification for how the companies are going to proceed with crossing these different bodies of water really just doesn't pass the smell test. They're um, not giving straight answers and they're really not necessarily thinking more broadly or long term. So DEQ is saying, you know what, we're not going to issue any permits for you to proceed until you answer um, a litany of questions. And so this is, it's a really positive, it's great to see DEQ, you know, they are our agency to be our environmental police um, and protecting all of us across the state from projects that will put our health at risk and will harm our natural resources, our wildlife. So this is, you know, this is a great shift from, from uh, where we saw DEQ before um, and really fast tracking the pipeline and under our new administration, seeing a really thoughtful approach um, and asking the right questions. Great. Uh, I want to talk a, a minute about hurricanes because we're hurricane season's wrapping up. We have had a few bad ones. Hurricane Harvey uh, in Houston was particularly bad. And I think there is a connection between why that one may have been so bad and what uh, could be really bad if, if a similar storm were to hit eastern North Carolina. And that has to do with uh, impervious services and, and how much basically pavement um, we have or, or we might have. Uh, Matthew, can you talk a little bit about uh, the impact that had in Houston and what's being done in North Carolina to prevent that? Yeah, so it hasn't been, it's been about a year since Hurricane Matthew came through, which saw devastating flooding. We've had numerous large hurricanes in the past couple of years come through eastern North Carolina and cause widespread environmental damage, loss of property, loss of life. So really bad storms. And Hurricane Harvey, um, when it made landfall around the Houston area and kind of stuck around, a lot of that um, flooding was caused by poor land use planning, um, which really came to light during and and post-Floyd, or excuse me, post-Harvey. There were reports out there basically outlining what would happen if a storm like Hurricane Harvey came through. And, and that's exactly what happened is there was widespread flooding due, obviously, to the hurricane, but was what was made worse through irresponsible land use planning. Are we responsibly planning our land use in North Carolina? Um, I think in some areas we are, and um, in some areas we're, we're definitely not. And land use planning has to do with um, impervious surfaces. Impervious surfaces are, are driveways, rooftops, roads, buildings, any, anything that when the rain falls, it doesn't get absorbed, it runs off. Um, but we also have um, the need for proper floodplain management. So those areas most prone to flooding during storms, not just hurricanes, but other smaller storms, need to have the, the proper protection so that they can buffer communities from um, the you know, flooding made worse through uh, urban sprawl or, or or growth. We can have we can have 
growth. We can we can have um, towns and cities grow without causing detriment to the environment or increasing the probability of flooding through storms. We just need to be smart about it. Correct. Smart and, growth. And learn lessons from other places that that have suffered Definitely. natural disasters. Um, uh, t- speaking of Hurricane Matthew, uh, we're still not, we still don't have the money that we need to rebuild after Matthew, right? Grady, what, what's the latest with that? Well, we were disappointed. The state was quite disappointed with the money that came from the, the National Administration in response to Matthew. Um, and then the, the state legislature did provide, um, in the state budget, did provide for spending money on relief, but it's far short of what the need is. Um, and I've not followed closely since then how that money is being spent and how it's getting out the door. And, and that money is, is for recovery. The money is not for making sure that the next hurricane That's isn't right. as bad as previous storms. The the mayor of Kinston has been quite vocal on this, and he's 100% right um, that it's easy to write a check after a storm. It, it's not easy to do what's needed to make the next storm not as bad. And so I, I think local municipalities are, are really learning this um, unfortunately a bad lesson at this point and and so hopefully like you alluded to earlier we we can start to learn from these from these storms and and adapt what's necessary to make sure that the flooding on the next storm is not as bad all right thanks uh katie real quick u.s climate alliance what happened? Yeah, so this, uh, last week, Governor Cooper announced that North Carolina would be joining um, with 14 other states in the U.S. Climate Alliance. This is a bipartisan group of states who are committed to reducing their share of greenhouse gases um, in alignment with the goals set out in the Paris Climate Accord. So uh, North, North Carolina is, again, reaffirming that we will continue to move towards a clean energy economy, and uh, hopefully that includes transitioning off fossil fuels like the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, a proposed project. All right. Well, I think that's about all the time we have. This always tends to go by really, really quickly, but I hope you all will join me again in the future. Uh, We're going to close out. This has been The Dirt with Brian Powell. I want to thank all of our guests here and previously for your contributions to today's program. A big thanks to Conservation Network's Mike Lento for helping produce our rate case segment. A huge, huge thank you to our producer, Jessica Graham, and the rest of the WSHA production team. Please join us again every fourth Tuesday of the month at 12 noon on WSHA-FM. This program is underwritten by the North Carolina Conservation Network. Be sure to check out the Dirt FM on Twitter for links to the show, bonus content, updates on the stories we've covered today. Download the podcast now on iTunes and give the show a review. And I will see you next time. Remember, WSHA-FM is public radio for North Carolinians and listeners around the world.